Well, good afternoon, everyone. So happy to be back with you to introduce for you the second half of Virginia Opera's 2019-2020 uh, season. Interestingly, at least I find it interesting, uh, the two operas that uh, close our season, uh, Rossini's Cinderella and Verdi's Aida, have a common theme. They both deal with enslaved princesses. Uh, in the Rossini, which is mostly what I'll be talking about today, uh, we have young Angelina, who is the Cinderella character. She's basically enslaved to her evil stepfather. It's a stepfather in this case, uh, having to do all the work while her uh, two stepsisters loll around and live their version of the good life. Uh, and then she eventually becomes a princess. And in Aida, of course, there is an Ethiopian princess, Aida, who is enslaved to the Egyptians. So that's kind of cool, I guess. Um, I think a lot of you in our uh, WHRO uh, listening audience will be of the demographic, uh, the demographic that will recall the stand-up comic Milton Berle. Remember Uncle Milty? Uh, he did stand-up monologues <laughs> most every day of his adult life, and what he did was build up a file of 10,000 jokes so that he could keep recycling and have material that nobody had heard before. 10,000 jokes, just think of it. However, he was a thoughtful guy when it came to the art and the skill of comedy, and he once said that there are really only three jokes. That in other words, every joke can be analyzed to pl be placed in one of three categories of humor. And, you know, I'm getting to have enough senior moments that I can only remember two of them. One was like puns, plays on words. The other was, uh, the second one was irony, uh, where the, the punchline is a surprise and the surprise element is what makes you laugh. And I don't know, maybe the third one was the shaggy dog story, something so absurd and silly that you laugh. But he said every joke could be uh, considered one of those three varieties. And I think it's the same with stories. I think there are a limited number of stories. There are archetypes of stories with elements and characters that you find in every period of history, in every culture. And uh, the breaking news I have for you is that, guess what? Walt Disney did not make up the Cinderella story. So where did he get it from? Well, of course, uh, Rossini's opera uh, was uh, first premiered in Rome in 1819, but uh, where did he get it from? Uh, in 1812, the Grimm brothers, uh, Jacob and Wilhelm, published their Cinderella story. But where did they get it from? And here I could spend the rest of our time this afternoon going down the very deep rabbit hole of the history of Cinderella. Uh, in 1697, we have Charles Perrault, whose Mother Goose Tales included what I think is the version of Cinderella that Disney relied on. Where did Perrault get it from? Maybe the Italian Cinderella story from 1634. Well, without boring you any further, you can go back to ancient China in which there is a young girl named uh, Yexin who, instead of a fairy godmother, had a 
magical fish that loved her. And even though her evil stepmother uh, killed and cooked the fish and ate it for dinner, uh, the, ma the bones of the fish that remained still had magical powers. And so uh, Ye uh, Yeshen uh, made her wishes over those bones and the spirit of the magical fish uh, helped her get to uh, all the things she wanted to do. And from that point on, it's pretty much the Cinderella story. And even centuries before that, in ancient Greece, there's the story of a girl who's by a riverbank. She takes off her sandals. An eagle picks up one of the sandals and flies to a far-off kingdom where it drops it at the feet of a king. The king sees the sandal, and it must have been a really cool sandal because he sends his men out into all the provinces uh, over the mountains, through the valleys, to look for the woman who wears that shoe. And so you see, Cinderella is an age-old story. Of course, come to think of it, so is Aida, as we will discuss uh, in a few weeks from now. Aida is a Romeo and Juliet story, another archetype. Now, another thing I want to point out about Rossini's Cinderella. Some of you out there probably have the guilty pleasure of watching some of those reality shows that are singing contests. The most iconic one would be American Idol, which I guess is still on the air. I have to confess, I don't watch many of those because it always creeps me out when they have 12-year-old girls singing Musetta's Waltz. I just, it really rubs me the wrong way. Or the singing mailman from New Jersey who tries a little Puccini. It just, it's like nails on a blackboard to me. But people do enjoy these. I think the current one is called The Mask or The Masked Singer or something like that. And we like singing contests in America because it's fun to, one after another, they come out and they try to wow us. They try to make our jaws drop with their sheer talent and personality and elan and verve and so forth. And then we argue about which one was the best. Long after the winner is awarded the prize, people go on social media and argue about which one really should have won. Well, back in 1819 in Italy, they didn't have TV. Hate to tell you that, but they did have singing contests. And what I want you to know about Rossini's Cinderella, or the original title, La Cenerentola, is that that's what it was for the audience that came to see it. Because every number is a study in giving an opportunity for a singer to wow us and amaze us with their stunning, dazzling virtuosity. And if you don't think those singers were trying to outdo each other, you're crazy. Of course they were. And long after the performance was over, the people on the street would be arguing about which one was the best, and usually there would be a consensus, and then that artist would be the, the singer whose name was on the lips of all the people of Bologna or Naples or Milan or Venice or Rome, uh, and they would become the next big star, and... Uh, just as these days people come to see star singers at the Met or at Virginia Opera, people went to see star singers back then. So it really, it is kind of, think of it as a contest in which the characters, the artists playing the characters come out on stage and they're constantly trying to outdo each other and make our jaws drop. And let's start looking at some music now in the time we have left this afternoon. Oddly and ironically, there's none of that in the first excerpt I'm going to play for you. 
It's Cinderella's first little solo, and it's not an aria. It has no virtuosity. It doesn't have any fancy runs or trills or scales or leaps. It's a simple folk song. So is she trying to throw the contest? Is she tanking it so someone else can win? No, not at all. Listen to a little bit of it. Then I'll tell you what she was saying and why it is so modest. Well, that's not the kind of music that's going to turn anybody into an overnight star. Uh, in this case, Cinderella is singing an old folk tale, a folk song. And folk songs are not about virtuosity. They're about a story. And what she was saying is, once upon a time there was a king who was tired of living alone. So he decided to search for someone to marry he searched and he searched, and what did he find? Three maidens, all of whom were eligible or available for marriage. Did he choose beauty or wealth? No, in the end, she sings, he chose the woman who was modest and innocent. Now, what's interesting about this, there are two things. This kind of explains why um, there's no virtuosity to what she just sang. Uh, she is at a low point in her life. She is enslaved by her stepfather and her two stepsisters, Clorinda and Tisby. And while they have fun, she has to shine their shoes, sweep out the cinders from the grate, do the cooking, do the cleaning. And so her life is terrible. So she's not happy enough or excited enough to sing with great virtuosity. This is a rags-to-riches story. The uh, technical display will come as she gains confidence and has more to say. Right now, she isn't in the mood to dazzle us because her life is far from dazzling. Uh, the other thing about it is that it shows that this is not the original Cinderella. Yes, she's singing the Cinderella story, and it's kind of cool that all the things she sings about are going to happen to her, but she's singing a well-known tale. This is not the original Cinderella. Uh, she understands that, there, that this is a story from ancient times, and so she's recounting it, just dreaming, hoping, because in those days, what else did people have but dreaming and hoping and wishing for something spectacular to happen. Usually the poor stayed poor and the rich got richer, if you know what I mean. Well, soon uh, the courtiers from Prince Ramiro, who was, yes, going to be our Prince Charming, our handsome prince, uh, come along and they announce that the prince is about to visit their household because he is in search of a bride and he understands that there are eligible women in this household, and he's going to come and invite them to uh, a ball at his home and possibly select one of them for marriage. Well, this throws the stepsisters into a tizzy. Uh, suddenly they need to, you know, wash their hair, 
get their curling iron, uh, put on some makeup, change their clothes, put on a fancy gown. And so who's going to help them? Cinderella. So they're telling her from each side of the stage, there's, Cinderella, come here. No, come here. Get my gown. Get my makeup. Do this. Do that. And the poor girl is trying to wait on two people at once. And this leads to one of those rapid patter ensembles that are so fun to listen to. Uh, here is poor Cinderella bemoaning that they're telling her, Vien qua, vien la, va su, va ju, come here, go there, go up, go down. And it becomes a little bit of a sparkling uh, moment of musical humor. Now, here's a little bit of context for what you just heard. I think that uh, Rossini is recreating a favorite passage, a famous passage from his previous, most recent hit opera, which was everybody's favorite, Barbiere di Siviglia, The Barber of Seville. She was just singing Cenerentolo Vianqua, Cenerentolo Valla, Cenerentolo Vassu, Cenerentolo Vienju. Go here, go there, go up, go down. You know who else sang that? Figaro in his famous Largo al Factotum. That sounded like this. Figaro! So you liked it in The Barber of Seville, you're going to love it in La Cenerentola, in Cinderella. Uh, taking an element that the public enjoyed and kind of inserting it into his latest opera. Well, it's time to meet uh, our uh, evil stepfather, the basso buffo role, Don Magnifico, which in English I love is Mr. Magnificent. Uh, he's not as magnificent as he used to be, people. Uh, he's a baron. However, his wife has died and his fortune is running out and the paint is peeling in his baronial mansion and the furniture is threadbare and times are tough. They're running out of money. So it's going to be really cool if uh, one of his daughters can get, you know, be the wife of a prince because that will save their bacon. When we meet him, uh, he has an aria. And at first, I won't play you this part, but the introduction to his aria is one that is very majestic and very uh, dignified and with a great deal of pomp. And you're thinking, well, this is a very distinguished man. But then he starts describing a dream that he had. And in this dream, he um, was dreaming of a donkey. And the donkey was covered with feathers and it started flying around, and it rose up to the top of a steeple where it sat on top of the steeple, and he complains to his daughters, and that's when all of your chattering out here woke me up. Uh, in Italian, the equivalent of our expression yakety-yak is chi-chi-choo-choo. -choo. 
and you'll hear him complain about the chee-chee-choo-choo that woke him up. And you'll also hear the church bells chime as the donkey with feathers flies up to sit on the steeple. Piano perti sotto Le campanas dindolar Din don, din don, din don, din don Col cicci ciucci di bottoni facesteri svegliar Col cicci ciucci di bottoni facesteri svegliar Col cicci ciucci di bottoni facesteri svegliar Sometimes when I'm stuck in traffic at a red light or at a traffic jam in the bridge tunnel, I'll amuse myself by trying to go and yes, the people in the other cars uh, look at me funny, but you know, try that at home. Uh, build up your rapid patter skills, people. Uh, now, it's the prince enters, but when the prince enters, he's in disguise. He's disguised as a lowly servant. And his lowly servant, a baritone character named Dandini, is uh, in disguise as the prince. Uh, they have decided, the prince has decided to trade identities with his servant in order to scope out this household and see what's what with Don Magnifico and his family. Now, this is a twist that uh, is in Rossini's opera that's not part of the traditional tale. And why did they do this? Well, think about the story for a moment. A girl has a miserable life. Her evil step-parent is torturing her and not letting her have any fun, drinking bread and water, never going to the ball. It's not really a comedy. Um, it has to be a comedy in an opera because it has a happy ending. And because in, in Italian opera of the bel canto period, uh, you weren't really, uh, you had two choices, uh, 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 opera seria or a comedy, a buffo play. So um, in or th there's not a lot of natural laughs in this story. So the librettists have to insert comic situations. So this is just a, an attempt to turn something funny into a story that isn't really that funny with the switch of identities. And where is the humor in that? Because Dandini, uh, temporarily in disguise as the prince, gets to order the real prince around. Do this, do that. Well, you know, poor Ramiro has to take it. And then, yes, my lord. You know, so there, there are a lot of opportunities for humor. Uh, by the way, in case you want to know, this libretto was stolen from another composer. There's nothing original about it. Uh, Rossini procrastinated writing this opera for the carnival season in Rome for so long that the police had to show up and knock on his door and threaten to arrest him unless he, uh, you know, fulfilled his commission. So with time running out, he and his librettist just basically stole someone else's work and quickly set it to music. Now, Dandidi comes in and sings a very smug, self-satisfied aria. He is having a ball play acting and being the prince. Um, and when he gets to the end of his aria, there is a bit of uh, virtuosity. He's going to sing some rapid uh, scales, some melismas, as we would call them technically. And listen to this, because when I heard this, I understood what I was listening to. And after you hear it, I'll tell you what you're hearing. 
Now, if you heard those little runs, you heard a little yabba dabba 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 dum, yeah, twice going up and doing kind of a slow trill on those top notes. The first time that I uh, heard that music, I thought, well, that's Beethoven. And that's interesting because uh, Beethoven and Rossini were acquainted. Rossini paid a visit to Beethoven once. We have a record of their conversation. And uh, Beethoven was a fan of Barbara Seville. Of course, his hearing problem kept him from attending it, but he read through the score, like you and I read a newspaper, and he, he got Rossini's sense of humor. He said, this is good stuff. You are very good at comic opera. He said, give us more Barbers. Don't try to write tragedies. Give us more stuff like the Barber. That is funny stuff. And uh, you can tell to what extent Rossini and uh, Beethoven were kindred souls about musical humor because that passage you just heard, I heard it in an uh, earlier work that Beethoven wrote in 1802, the finale of his second symphony. <laughs> So I think there's an, a little homage <laughs> to Beethoven, perhaps, in the end of Dandini's aria, Comunape. Uh, now, what happens is that um, there's a moment in which uh, it turns out that Don Magnifico is happy to let Clorinda and Tisbe go in the prince's coach to the ball and have dinner and dance and uh, be checked out as possible brides, but he will not let his servant Cinderella go. And by now, uh, the prince has already seen and kind of fallen in love with this girl of the cinders, with Angelina. He doesn't know who she is, but a big kind of argument ensues, a big discussion. Well, why can't this girl go? But Don Magnifico is adamant. Nope, she's not my daughter. She's just a servant. She's not going to go. And this begins a quintet. Now, a quintet in an opera you might think is a song sung by five people, but actually this is a quintet similar to maybe more akin to the Schubert string quintet. In other words, a multi-movement work. This quintet uh, for five characters plus a bit of chorus and orchestra, it is a multi-movement scene with an opening movement that's an allegro, the quick, lively tempo, a march-like second movement, a slow movement for the third movement, and then a presto, a really as fast as possible final movement. And like an instrumental work, they are in contrasting keys. They, each movement has its own internal structure, like ABA, some three-part structure or something like that. And uh, each movement has its own affect, its own character. Uh, so, uh, and Rossini lavishes this care and complexity on this musical number because it's a real key turning point in the drama. The uh, de decision not to let Cinderella go to the ball. Now, there's something else that is akin to instrumental music. Uh, many of you opera lovers know that this comes smack dab in the middle of the period of opera history known as bel canto, 
that means beautiful singing. And this is the era in which the art of singing was developed to its highest point, never to be, never before approached, and some would say never since equaled. Um, it means beautiful singing, but the way Rossini did it, I think it, there's a, a better definition. It's not just beautiful singing, it's virtuosic singing. It's singing in which uh, the technique is extended, vocal technique is extended to enable singers to do all the same kinds of things that a flute or a violin or a piano or any other kind of orchestral instrument can do. Rapid scales, uh, rapid passage work, leaps from low notes to high notes, rapid leaps, uh, extended range going up to high notes that had never been sung before, trills, and all sorts of fancy embellishments. So we have a multi-movement quintet, and we very often have singers exhibiting instrumental technique. Now, uh, Cinderella begins the quintet, and before I play you the vocal version of it that is sung in the opera, Let's hear, this melody has always sounded to me like it would be appropriate for a flute sonata, a flute showpiece, for perhaps flute and piano. So I asked my daughter, who is a professional flutist, Kathleen Winterscastle, who is a tenured member of the uh, Duluth Symphony Orchestra in Minnesota, to play Cinderella's opening movement melody on the flute, and it sounds like this. If that sounds easy to sing, try it. <laughs> you know, don't try that at home. You're going to hurt yourself. And yet, this is what Rossini expects the mezzo-soprano or contralto playing Angelina to be able to do. And as she sings this, what she's doing is protesting. She's saying, my father, just una parola, un ora, un ora sola, one hour, just for one hour, let me go to the ball. And here she is making like a flute. course there was uh, her evil stepfather sneering and laughing at her pathetic plea for kindness um, and uh, in the end he forbids her to go and uh, so the two stepdaughters and their father leave in the golden coach of Prince Ramiro really Dandini in disguise to head to the palace and have a night on the town as the guests of the prince uh, once they get there uh, dinner is served 
We're going to skip ahead to the finale of Act 1 because this will give us another trademark of Giacchino Rossini, and that is the big crescendo. This was one of his favorite devices. You find it in every single comedy, uh, usually several times in every single comedy, in which a musical figure, a phrase, uh, a melody, is repeated at first quietly, then louder and louder and louder until finally it reaches a climax and kind of erupts into musical chaos uh, or, or a very powerful statement. Um, in the Act One finale, as they're all seated for dinner, by now uh, Cinderella has uh, been given a gown by her, uh, not a fairy godmother, but a magical uh, fellow named Alidoro, who is the tutor of Prince Ramiro. Uh, he says, don't worry, I'm going to get you to that ball. He magically puts her into a gown, sends her on her way, and just as in the Walt Disney movie, here is this elegant stranger that kind of looks like Cinderella, but her family isn't sure. And as they all sit down to dinner, each is thinking their private thoughts. What is going to happen? The sisters are wondering, will I get to marry the prince? Uh, everybody's wondering what, how the story is going to come out, and their anxieties are reflected in a big crescendo. they start in all over again, reach another great climax, and the curtain comes down on Act 1. Uh, in Act 2, uh, we're going to get another kind of virtuosity. Now, Cinderella, in her flute-like uh, opening movement of the quintet, uh, sang melismas, in which you sing many uh, notes to one syllable. I love you, and so forth. That's one kind of rapid singing in the bel canto area. The other is when you sing many syllables as rapidly as possible. Uh, we tend to think of Gilbert and Sullivan in America for that, you know, the modern major general song, I am the very model of a modern major general, uh, which is fun, but W.S. Gilbert didn't make this up. And I want you to get a load of the rapid patter in the uh, second act aria of Don Magnifico. Now, in this aria, he's pretty sure that either Clorinda or Tisby will soon be a princess. And so he starts counting his chickens before they've hatched. 
he imagines that once he is the father of a princess, everybody in town will come up to him seeking favors. Hey, Magnifico, here's 20 bucks. Can you fix my parking ticket for me? You know, kind of wink, wink to the prince, see if he can excuse it. Hey, uh, I, I sort of want to open a new shop. Can you get me a license? It, I'm using modern contemporary examples, but he imagines that everybody will be bribing him to seek favor with the prince because the prince has married his daughter. Now he gets so carried away that he imagines that people will start bothering him, that they'll be 24-7 knocking on his door, leaving him text messages, imploring him, and he's going to get tired of it, and he'll tell them all to go. He's sort of, well, he's an idiot, isn't he? Here he is fantasizing about being overrun with more requests than he can handle, and it makes him mad. Punchuzzo. Did you ever try to do that old McDonald's slogan? Two all beef patties, special sauce, cheese, lettuce, pickles, onion, sesame seed bun. Oh, I used to be able to do it really good. I used to be able to do it backwards. Yeah, it's a little bit like that. And I can tell you because I've had to sing rapid patter a few times in my uh, brief operatic singing career, the way you do that is you start off very slowly. And for about two weeks, for hours a day, you go two all beef patties, special sauce, cheese, lettuce, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. And over time, you build up the speed until it becomes a muscle memory. And <laughs> that's just kind of great stuff. Now, uh, doesn't the charming prince get a, an aria? Certainly he does. Uh, in this version of Cinderella, it's not the glass slipper, as it was in Charles Perrault's 1694 French retelling. It's bracelets. She has a couple of bracelets that the fairy godfather, Alidoro, gave her. And when she decides she has to leave, uh, Ramiro says, how will I find you again? She says, well, here, I'll give you one of my bracelets. If you want to find me again, look for a girl wearing the matching bracelet. And so Ramiro, once she is gone, says, see, ritrovarla. Yes, I will find her if it's the last thing I do. And so there's kind of a heroic cast to this. He's very dashing. He's very ardent. And... Uh, He's going to sing about half a dozen high C's, which probably stood as the record until the guy in uh, The Daughter of the Regiment by Donizetti surpassed it with nine. But six is pretty good. You'll hear a couple of them here in C. Ritrovarla. Si ritrovarla io ti 
So remember, we've got kind of an informal competition going for virtuosic singing. So far, the leading contenders might be uh, Cinderella when she sang that dazzling bit of flute-like uh, writing that we heard earlier. Or maybe it was that rapid patter, the tongue twister that uh, uh, Magnifico sang at top speed in the previous excerpt. Or maybe now now people in the audience are forgetting those uh, those two and they're now dazzled by the ease of those high seas that are sprinkled about by Don Ramiro, by Prince Ramiro. Oh, but there's more to come because you always end with the most spectacular. Well, we had a major bit of vocal chamber music, that multi-movement quintet in Act One, and in the next, the final scene of the opera, uh, we're back in, uh, in Magnifico's uh, home, and sure enough, the uh, prince comes seeking the woman with the bracelet. Uh, here he is. By now, everybody knows that he's not the servant, that he's the prince. And to the disgust of Magnifico and Clorinda and Tisby, he recognizes Cinderella and he says, I choose you. I am going to marry you. Well, this is a bombshell. You know, CNN and MSNBC would have the breaking news with the crawl at the bottom of the screen. Ramiro chooses servant girl, you know, kind of like Harry and, you know, and Meghan leaving uh, the royal family. It's a, a bombshell like that. So everybody is frozen. They, the time stops. While all the six major characters and the courtiers chorus behind them kind of stop to think about the ramifications of this bombshell announcement. And <laughs> again, now we have a sextet, which is going to be another four-movement complete work with changing keys, changing tempos, internal structure for each movement. And the first movement of this sextet, in which all the people are stunned into uh, thinking, what, is, what does this mean? How can this be? Rossini handles with such wit that it is my favorite moment in this opera because it sounds like they're thinking on tiptoe. You'll see what I mean. Oh, 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 oh,
just take a moment to appreciate how Rossini orchestrated the voices there. It becomes like chamber music because uh, we reach the point where the various soloists start tossing around those little runs, from one to the other, sort of like they're playing mixed doubles tennis, while the other characters keep up that pizzicato accompaniment, like bump, 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 like plucked strings. It's just really good stuff. You don't even have to know what they're singing. You can just enjoy it as abstract music, which is pretty much always the case with Rossini. Now, there is a third movement that I'm going to skip to in this sextet, which is a markedly different character and in a different key. Um, in the second movement, the stepsisters and the stepfather are unhappy. They are complaining, they are bitter, they are angry. And in the third movement, and this makes Ramiro in turn very angry and he wants to punish them. Uh, in the third movement, we have a wonderful passage for Angelina for Cenerentola, in which she says, no, don't punish my family. They've been cruel to me, but they are my family. Have mercy on them. Please don't be angry with them. Show them mercy. Now, there's a lot of inanity and silliness and sight gags and playing for laughs in this opera. This is one of those moments of real human sentiment. Uh, in which we're not trying to dazzle people, in which we're injecting some real humanity, and it is perhaps the most lyrically beautiful section of Cinderella. That's pretty good stuff. And if you're an opera lover who knows a lot of the standard repertoire, when you were thinking of that, you might have thought, you know, that sounds that reminds me a little bit of the famous sextet from Lucia de Lammermoor. And points for you. You're exactly right. Uh, that is one of those numbers that kind of uh, uh, sets into motion the Italian tradition of the concerted ensemble uh, that has lyrical beauty, and involves all the characters on stage. Well, uh, their family is just going to have to lump it because Prince Ramiro has made his choice. And in the, f uh, the finale, I mentioned I was wrong. It's no, the, what we just heard was not the final scene. The final scene is back in the palace. And here is Cinderella, the cinder girl no more. She's wearing her fabulous gown and there's a tiara on her head and she is the Princess Angelina. 
her family is still pouting. And now it's kind of funny. Cinderella, it's the very end. The, fi the last number in the opera is Cinderella's first aria. Oh, we've heard her sing, but she hasn't had an aria. Magnifico has had three arias. The fairy godfather, Alidoro, he had an aria. Ramiro had an aria. Dandini had an aria. The title character has not yet had an aria. She's only been in these ensembles and had her little dopey folk song back at the beginning. I think she needs an aria, don't you? Well, this is because she's going to win the competition uh, if she has the stuff to do it, if she's got the technique. Um, she, again, you know, the subtitle of this opera is The Triumph of Goodness. And some people complain about this opera that Cinderella exhibits Stockholm Syndrome because her thoroughly nasty family probably deserves a comeuppance. But she takes them aside as the princess and graciously says, I don't want to fight anymore. I want you to remain here. I want us to remain a family. I want you to think of me not as your rival, but as your daughter, your sister, your friend. And this has quite the moving effect. Again, it's a, it's a bit of uh, a wonderful bit of human sentiment to make an ending that is not nasty, that's not silly, but that leaves you with kind of a warm feeling about maybe the human nature is not always terrible. And once that they have accepted her forgiveness, now we get to the closing fireworks. She's going to celebrate the way everything has turned out, that all her wishes and dreams came true with a burst of, guess what, uh, vocal virtuosity, pyrotechnics, the kind of thing that uh, my friend Anne Majette, who recently retired from being the chief uh, music critic for the Washington Post, what Anne said about this number is that it is so dazzling that what she always envisions when she listens to it on a CD is that at the end, Cinderella's head explodes like a Muppet's. And everybody's heads, they just explode because the, uh, the virtuosity is so overpowering that what else can you do but have your head explode? I love that image. Now, again, this is based on both instrumental technique and an instrumental form, the form of theme and variations. Uh, this is something that Rossini has borrowed from the Viennese classical dudes like uh, Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven. In fact, I think it's very similar to what you have in uh, Mozart's very famous variations on A vous dire je maman, uh, what we know, the tune we know as Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Uh, very often, with variations, you'll have a theme that is so simple and childlike that it doesn't seem to have much interest. But it's the variations that embellish it and kind of wow us with technique. So here in Kitsa, re re uh, revive your memory if you haven't heard this in a while. Here is the theme and first variation from Mozart's Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star variations.
and so forth, and we're off to the races with Mozart. Now, compare that with Cinderella's final aria, Non più mesta. No more sadness, no more funerals, no more, uh, no more Cinderella. Um, again, you're going to get a theme that is deliberately very simple and almost childlike. But then and there, you'll hear two variations in which uh, Cinderella gets to show us what she can do. Again, don't try that at home. You're going to hurt yourself. Uh, but she's not done. Then she launches into the end of this aria, which is just an eruption of pure joy. Uh, this is the Muppet head exploding passage in which it, she just reaches dizzying heights of both elation and happiness and virtuosity. And if the mezzo-soprano is well cast in the role of Angelina, there's no doubt she's going to be Italian idol. She's going to win that reality show, which is Rossini's Cinderella. Get a load of this. <laughs> of singing extended to its maximum potential 
potential realized. That's everything you can do with a human voice. They call it bel canto. I call it dazzling. And it's one thing to hear it uh, over the airwaves on the radio or uh, at home on a CD. It's another thing to see it live, to be in the same room where a human being stands on a stage and sounds like that come out of their body. It's one of the portals of entry into the pleasure of opera. And uh, so take advantage. We hope to see you there when this opera opens on Friday night. And thanks for listening. We'll be back in a few weeks to close out the season and talk about Verdi's Aida. <laughs> 